Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Search Software Quality's Test and Release Podcast. This is episode 21, and I'm here with editor Tim Colorhouse. Can you say hi, Tim? Hi, everybody. And our guest today is Tech Target's very own Beth Parasa. Hi, Beth. Hi. So, Beth, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you generally cover uh, for Tech Target? Yeah. Um, so, my name is Beth Pariso. I'm a senior news writer with um, searchitoperations.com primarily, but I also do some writing for search software quality uh, these days. I have been with Tech Target since prehistoric times in internet years, uh, since 2005. Um, and I have covered everything from data storage to server virtualization, the cloud, and now DevOps and digital transformation. Perfect. And thank you again for being here with us today. To kind of get it started, uh, get our conversation started here, uh, the first question we wanted to ask you is, uh, so Beth, you, you attend a lot of conferences for your jobs, and we were very much curious about what, what you kind of sense the paradigm to be around distributed work, uh, virtual work, and hybrid work. I, I know, I think you're, you're just getting back from attending a few um, conferences recently yourself. I'd say whether it's remote and hybrid work or in-person conferences, things are at an awkward stage right now. Um, and it's not just my opinion. Um, I also talked with uh, the CEO of Red Hat, Paul Cormier at Red Hat Summit in person last month, which was the first in-person event that I've done since before the pandemic um, in Boston. And um, he was saying, you know, and obviously this is gonna affect his business um, pretty deeply, but he, he's saying nobody really knows how this is gonna shake out in another couple of years. Um, right now, there's a little bit of a push and pull between kind of the supply side and the buy side in terms of employers and employees about what they're gonna do. Are they gonna get back to the office? Um, is there gonna be a mandate to do that? Are they gonna continue with a kind of, um, you know, limbo where it's hybrid or it's a mix? Um, but we have seen some pretty big uh, companies and pretty big uh, CEOs rebuffed in their efforts to push everyone back into the office. JP Morgan Chase is an example. Um, you know, I think companies right now have enough trouble retaining and uh, recruiting new employees, given the way that the job market is with the great resignation and low unemployment, um, that they really can't use the stick uh, to get people to just force people back into the office. People are just not going along with that. Um, in part because of the way the job market is, but also in part because I think the perspective that uh, the pandemic gave a lot of people, both that remote work can work demonstrably. Um, there are some cases in which people are more productive working remotely, um, but also that, um, you know, they're, they're not necessarily going to um, be cowed by corporate culture as much as they were. Um, you know, life is too short. So, um, and, you know, when we all started uh, working remotely because the pandemic had struck, there was a critical impetus and there was a definite direction everyone needed to go in. Everybody had to go to their separate corners because there was a life or death issue at hand. And since then, there's sort of been, um, especially since vaccines came out and, you know, different people have different attitudes toward the risk of the virus there's just been sort of entropy and there isn't a forcing function to kind of push all that toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak. In some ways you can't really undo what's been done. Um, and there are some people who have had a taste of remote work that aren't going back. Um, and so I think 
you know, unfortunately, there isn't a definite answer yet. Um, if the job market shifts and employers have more leverage, they may succeed in, you know, um, more of a mandate to get people back to the office. Um, or, you know, uh, things will continue toward the remote and hybrid uh, direction now that we've seen that it can work for people. Um, we have the technology to make it happen effectively. Um, but there's also, you know, a set of um, sectors of our economy that are tied to people going to work um, in offices, um, most especially corporate and commercial real estate. Um, you know, and so who knows how those factors could affect everyone. Um, you know, so right now, you know, if even Red Hat CEO doesn't know, I certainly don't know how this is going to play out. And you mentioned Beth in terms of the return to office element versus working from home or distributed teams. And as part of your job, you go to conferences, you're reporting, you're doing live interviews, and you know we're starting to see the return of in-person conferences, but still with the potential either for online viewing or hybrid viewing. And I'm just wondering now that it's getting back to not a level pre-pandemic, obviously, but some semblance of travel with mass groups of people at conferences you know, what your take is from having been to a couple in-person ones where there are large groups of people, and then also just the overall conference experience between sitting on your computer and alternating with Zoom rooms and then going to in-person sessions once again. So um, I've done two events in person this year for the first time since the pandemic, Red Hat Summit in Boston and CDCon in Austin, Texas. Um, and so, um, both of them, I hadn't been to a CD con in person, but I have been to a number of Red Hat summits in the past. And in terms of the size, Red Hat summit, uh, was not what it used to be. Um, there were, we're talking in terms of hundreds of people there in person, um, versus thousands. Um, you know, it had been held, um, several times within the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, which is, I mean, enormous, sprawling structure. And this time it was held in the West End adjacent to uh, that convention center. Um, and so, you know, things are definitely not where they were. Um, they kind of can't be. Um, I thought, uh, and CDCon was a similar thing. Again, it had been a co-located uh, event at KubeCon. It hadn't been its own multi-day conference before. Um, so I'm not sure how how big it might have been had it not been for COVID, but, um, you know, it was also fairly modestly sized. Um, I think both were good in terms of requiring proof of vaccination and precautions to be taken uh, while people were sharing the space. I was glad to see that. Um, and um, I thought CDCon was very energetic. Um, the people who were there were engaged. They had big companies that I like to talk to, like Fidelity Investments, uh, presenting, um, who were also, you know, um, you know, available to to speak to. Um, but the days of being at just a big teeming show with, you know, and kind of going fishing on the show floor for for contacts and and for networking, which is really the big benefit for me of. of in-person conferences 
has not returned. Um, you know, I've made some contacts and I do think it's important to get back to in person for, for my job. Um, it's worth, and it was worth the trip. It was worth the plane trip, uh, to go to CDCon. Um, but it's not what it was. Um, and then, you know, virtual conferences, uh, it's not impossible to connect with people there. A lot of, uh, conferences, especially in the open source world have, um, Slack channels, which are really good. Um, also LinkedIn. I mean, I tend to use LinkedIn even when I'm in person these days, if I try to ask somebody for a business card, they look at me like, you mean a piece of paper, you know, nobody carries business cards anymore. So often connecting on LinkedIn is the, you know, the way that you kind of capture a person, um, that you're networking with. Um, and so you can do the same thing, obviously virtual conferences, um, have their own stressors because when I'm at a physical conference, I'm not expected to keep up with every other news item that's going on in the market. But when I'm at home, it's a different expectation for whatever reason. Um, and uh, there have been times that I've done two and at one point, even three virtual events at once in the same week, um, which is also certainly not something I would have done in the physical world. So they have their own pros and cons. Um, and the hybrid events are good. I mean, I, I was able to attend KubeCon Europe for the last couple of years because they were virtual and this year hybrid. Um, although I also heard about a, you know, a cluster of COVID cases after KubeCon EU, you know, it's really not gone. It's really not completely over. Um, and so, you know, I think things are still sort of happening in fits and starts right now. Uh, to circle back and uh, you, you touched on this, so I want to you know cover it a little bit. Um, um, what what from Red Hat this year have you seen uh, the DevOps practitioners specifically um, should have on their radar? Um, so uh, when I talked to Paul Cormier, um, you know, he said very definitively, and I hadn't seen him say this as definitively anywhere else that they're going SaaS first with with their products, uh, including OpenShift. Um, and I think you've seen that with Ansible as well. Um, they did a deal with Microsoft Azure where they're available with joint support on Azure in their marketplace and people can put their committed spend um, in the Azure cloud toward Ansible. Um, so they will in some cases be, be working with partners on that. In other cases, as with um, um, OpenShift Online and their, their OpenShift cloud services, um, they'll be offering it themselves. Um, that, you know, they are really um, pushing into uh, not just cloud and hosted applications, but software as a service, managed services. Um, their OpenShift data science uh, was an example that he gave of a service that they started um, software as a service and then went on-prem when there was demand. Um, so that is a pretty big st strategic shift. Um, for Red Hat to kind of go that definitively, that that is their priority, that that's where they're headed first going forward, and that's the business model that they want to pursue. And in in terms of your discussion with the folks from Red Hat, and just out of curiosity, is did they say this, or is there an inference here that possibly this approach to SaaS and the further push to the cloud has anything to do with the expanded time working remotely? Or is it just a better business model because they can find different ways to increase revenues? I think it's more the latter. Um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, 
uh, more about every every company. I mean, name them. They are trying to go to recurring subscription revenue. They're trying to go cloud-based. They're trying to go cloud-first. It's true of Splunk, ServiceNow. I mean, name the company, VMware. They're they're all trying to get into this, um, you know, cloud-based and SaaS-first sort of model. Um, and um, so I think that's primarily the motivator. But, um, you know, the pandemic, the shift to remote work has... Uh, has given digital transformation and cloud migration a huge kick in the pants. Um, you know, what Cormier said to me was that uh, we're five years ahead of where we might have been without it. Um, because again, dire necessity, you know, uh, forcing function. And, you know, it's either go cloud, um, you know, to kind of pull together these disparate people or resources in different locations or die. You know, it was really, it was really like everybody really had to, um, you know, uh, commit in that direction where maybe they hadn't before. And the people who were best off, especially in the initial year at 18 months, um, were the people who already had started. So I think that's also been something that's been accelerated a lot by the pandemic, the shift to remote work, the need for things like, um, you know, uh, identity and access management. Um, that isn't reliant on a VPN, um, you know, sort of cloud native, um, you know, services that can scale um, and also maybe manage more managed services where um, you can't have your IT uh, people in an office managing things like help desk um, from a central location for your company. So that tends to sort of move people toward those software as a service offerings. And um, so it's kind of a combo. Um, but I think I think that shift had started without the pandemic. And as you said, just accelerated or forced the hand of a lot of these companies when they were inching toward it. Now, all of a sudden, it's full steam ahead. Hugely. Yep. The more you had not just gone to cloud, but to DevOps, agile practices, um, you know, uh, whether technical or organizational, better off you were when the pandemic hit, you know, the more able you were to work in a distributed team effectively, um, the more able you were to um, collaborate asynchronously, which is hugely important when people are remote and working from home. Um, you know, the more you were able to use these sort of cloud services that have centralized resources where you don't have to think about how to make them available for people. You just have to think about what you're doing with them. Um, you know, I, I think the further along you were in digital transformation, it's pretty obvious, um, the better off you've been. And another element too that you mentioned about the shift to the cloud and continued distributed workflows, you know, earlier this year, the Atlassian cloud outage that took place and we've seen, you know, the Amazon cloud go down for various reasons and Google cloud and just kind of a nature of the beast sort of thing, but you know, has there been any shift or further awareness or I guess even preventative maintenance for organizations that now almost exclusively working in these distributed cloud environments that you know, when something goes wrong with your cloud provider and everybody's remote, what's going to happen? That sort of thing. Just curious your thoughts on that, Beth. I put the Atlassian outage in a different category. 
than AWS or any of the major hyperscalers having an outage, um, in part because um, the Atlassian outage in this case was much lengthier and more severe than any uh, cloud hyperscaler outage I've heard of. Um, at least for a long, long time, I haven't heard of any uh, cloud hyperscaler outage causing data loss that, that um, the user wasn't at least in part responsible for. Um, those cloud, those cloud uh, companies like AWS are operating at a lower level of the stack. So they're offering you infrastructure, but what you do with it, how resilient you make it is up to you. So it's up to you to have a multi-region or multi-zone um, multi um, resiliency for your apps. Maybe some people believe that you know multi-cloud is important for that reason. Um, and it's up to you to set up the infrastructure to make that happen. Um, and also, if you go from AWS to Azure to Google, uh, uh, you know, cloud virtual instance or container cluster is what it is in, in all of those cases. I mean, maybe there's a little bit different flavorings to them, but it's still basically a server or a cluster of servers that you're getting. Um, when you're talking about a SaaS provider like Atlassian, um, there isn't an equivalent to JIRA. Um, or if there is, it doesn't have your data. It doesn't have your history. It doesn't have your ongoing workflows that you're trying to do with it. If you go to a, if you go to a competitor and nobody's going to maintain dual workflows in different SaaS providers, like one in GitLab and one in, you know, Jira cloud for just such an occasion, which is still probably going to be vanishingly rare. Um, you know, even if you're using something like Confluence as a wiki, it's not like Google Docs is a backup. It's not like it's an alternative. There isn't, you know, there isn't a way for you to shore up the resiliency. It, you know, some people predicted that it might finally give SaaS backups um, the boost that they need. Although, I mean, having having covered backups back in 2005, they I don't know that it'll ever be um, a first class citizen in IT, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, there is the sense that at least you could protect your data from being lost. And, and I think that ultimately um, there were not very many Atlassian customers that um, had anything like permanent data loss, but th they had to, it took some doing for them to get the data back that had been deleted from primary systems. So that's another difference. Um, I think this outage, the kind of cascading, uh, you know, um, combination of problems that put them in this multi-week kind of nightmare, um, you know, having to restore things from backups manually and not being sure when they were going to get it back or whether they were going to get absolutely every byte of data back. I mean, that's not something you necessarily hear about these days very often in terms of cloud outages. So, um, you know, the other thing though is, I mean, the argument usually there in terms of cloud migration is, is your IT department necessarily any better? I don't think there's any enterprise that hasn't experienced that kind of outage and maybe even data loss internally with their own kind of uh, IT team limited by size and number of people and resources to work with. Um, and, um, you know, the other thing is that a cloud service provider um, has to pay you or at least not charge you under your service level agreement. Um, you know, whereas if your own uh, personnel, you know, um, have some kind of outage like that, you still have to pay them. Um, you know, so there are arguments for, for you know, still kind of trusting cloud SaaS providers, but um, 
it does it does raise questions absolutely that such a thing could happen in 2022 and um people have been critical of atlassian's communication while it was happening and um you know but the other thing is it's also very clear that atlassian's company strategy is those cloud products and they are really pushing people to go there um and you know there have also been some pretty critical uh security vulnerabilities that have happened in their on-prem products that didn't affect the cloud um you know in particular one that affected confluence server and data center um in the last couple of weeks that did not affect their cloud um instances of confluence um so you know i mean it's sort of a rock and a hard place because you're not necessarily going to do better internally you might feel like it it's sort of like you know uh flying versus driving you know you're more likely to get in a car accident when you're driving yourself but you feel that control right and also because the scope of what can happen if you know something goes wrong in an airplane is is pretty daunting as in this case with this um this atlassian outage so you know i had some analysts speculate that um that it might slow atlassian's um push the cloud a little bit they might rethink that strategy i haven't seen any evidence that they're doing that um and you know i think uh i don't think it's going to stop the cloud juggernaut you know i think people are going to figure out ways to maybe store things up um or just figure that you know the risk is is generally lower when they go with a, a cloud provider than if they try to do things themselves I'd be curious, uh, what thus far this year have you ended up covering that you yourself in January 2022 would not have expected to report on? That Atlassian outage, for sure. Nah. I definitely did not see that one coming. Not Nobody did. And, you know, even when it happened at, le at first, it was sort of, okay, you know, outages happen, they'll be back, you know, later today or tomorrow at worst, you know, and then as it kind of went on and you started hearing reports of people um, not being able to communicate because unfortunately one of the things that got lost in the initial uh, snafu was the contact data for the accounts that were affected. So they didn't necessarily notify everyone who was affected right away because they didn't have the list right away. Um, and also people whose accounts were deleted um, couldn't actually access uh, their service and support accounts because they didn't have a valid account ID according to the system. So things got pretty ugly and it took weeks uh, for some people to get things restored. And it, it took days for some people to even be contacted, be communicated with about what was happening and what was being done to fix it. Um, Atlassian also kind of um, held back external communications until they were more certain about what's going on. And, I don't know, I think hindsight's 2020 and you can say, oh, they should have communicated earlier. And in a postmortem, they said they feel they should have communicated earlier. But if if your communication is, uh, we don't know what the problem is yet. We don't know what we're gonna do about it. I don't know that that's necessarily actually realistically gonna, gonna help anything. Um, and so it was just, um, you know, it was compounding errors that, um, you know, it reminded me a little bit of the um, the WhatsApp outage that they had because both were related to automated systems and scripts and, you know, uh, with great automation power uh, can sometimes come great uh, mistakes. And um, 
you know, things can kind of get out of hand and cascade before you even really know it. And um, so um, it, it, I guess it shouldn't have been a surprise given how interconnected, automated, um, and distributed everything is and, and the possibility for something to kind of be a domino effect. Um, but maybe it's just a measure of um, how well these things generally perform, that it was a, a real surprise um, that something this severe happened. Um, and yeah, we'll see. I mean, they, they've taken some heat for that. They've taken some heat about uh, the security of products like Confluence lately. And, um, you know, at this time last year, I think they just were still kind of viewed as a powerhouse and kind of a um, a paragon within the, you know, DevOps and agile world. And um, I don't think I expected, you know, that, them to have such a rough go of it. I don't think they did either. While we're on this topic of uh, kind of larger forces, uh, forcing these companies to rethink their, their services and their organization, I'm wondering maybe could you talk about like, you know, what are your just general observations when it comes to acquisitions and buyouts right now? in the industry? Well, um, to be honest, I, I had expected there to be more. Um, I think maybe everybody got too used to the heady days of last year when cash was sloshing around in both venture capital and M&A and in the market. And um, there's sort of been a correction. Um, also inflation, you know, playing a role in the economy in general, uh, Ukraine. I mean, you know, there's so much going on in the world um, that's making things really volatile. And so, um, I think I had expected there to be more, I guess you would call it accretive M&A, more where, you know, a, a bigger company wants to acquire a startup's innovative technology or, um, you know, two, two companies come together because there are, you know, opportunities for them in terms of the technology features that they can offer and put together. Um, and there's been a little bit more along the lines of, um, you know, Puppet being acquired by a private equity firm. Um, I think it's enabled things to happen like Broadcom VMware that wouldn't necessarily have been possible um, without some changes to market valuations. But, um, you know, that that sort of um, consolidation um, within industry spaces like security, um, you know, just has not been as uh, frequent this year as it has been the last two years, really, and, and especially last year. So I think we're about to wrap things up here uh, today, Beth. Uh, thank you for joining us. But I did want to ask you one more question. That is, uh, what are your expectations and, uh, dare I say, maybe even predictions for the rest of this year? Oh, man. Um, honestly, I think security is going to still be top of mind. I, I am not a part of our security news team, but I sort of feel like I'm becoming part of it because um, so much of my beat, uh, that's the hot topic right now. Um, whether it's open source supply chain, software supply chain, um, you know, open source security in general, and things like the Open Software Security Foundation that are, um, you know, trying to find systemic solutions to, you know, some some major risks in open source, um, and um, all the dependencies everybody shares now. Um, that's a huge story. It's a huge uh, topic that, um, you know, became just really. Um, something people could not ignore with the log4j vulnerability that um, emerged in December. Um, that was a real huge wake up call for a lot of people. But 
Um, there are also still plenty of reports um, of things like Elasticsearch databases open to the internet without uh, access control in place, blocking and tackling stuff um, that still just is not happening um, in the industry. And so, but I think that a lot of energy is going to be spent this year, still reckoning with those things, still trying to get a handle on those things. You can never totally prevent or eliminate risk, but as an industry, um, you know, tech really has to figure out uh, cybersecurity, um, in part because there's now a legal mandate to do so with the president's executive order. Um, for many organizations, you know, they have to figure out zero trust architecture for the cloud era and um, supply chain issues. Um, and uh, so I think you'll be hearing more about big data breaches and outages because of security. I think um, there hopefully will be more community initiatives around it and um, ways that people are shoring it up that they can share with others. Um, but to me, that's going to probably still be a hot topic for the foreseeable future. Um, I think also uh, developer experience has become a, a bigger topic for, you know, now that people have uh, made the transition to DevOps and site reliability engineering, um, you know, in practice and organizationally, there's a little bit um, more of a um, pattern where uh, platform engineers and site reliability engineers are see themselves as product owners within an organization of a DevOps platform and see developers as their internal customers. And they're starting to apply some of the same customer experience, user experience principles to serving those customers as they do external ones with their company. Um, so that's bringing about a lot of interesting changes in terms of how people you know, in, in the markets I cover work day to day, um, how products are delivered and the expectations that people have um, for how their organizations are going to function. Um, and I just think, you know, uh, cloud native technology innovation is, is, you know, still continuing. I think there are things like uh, serverless computing function as a service. Um, WebAssembly is something that's starting to filter in around the edges as edge computing gets bigger. Uh, service mesh is something that's starting to really come into its own. Um, and um, I'm sure things that I have not even heard of yet by the time we get to KubeCon later this year. Well, Beth, thank you for spending some time with us today and chatting all things uh, tech with us on test and release. And we greatly appreciate it. And for all of our listeners, you can follow Beth's writing uh, all across the Tech Target Network. Uh, and her updates uh, on Twitter at ParisoTT. So Beth, thank you again for joining us. Good luck with uh, all the new stories and conferences coming up in the latter half of 2022. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thank you.